Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I do want to, you know, uh, make sure that we emphasize LFBI enrollment. Uh, you know, I think it was Nate that just said that we're not great at signing up for things. Uh, so please have some, some foresight and, and sign up for classes. And that way we can start arranging TAs and things like that uh, so that the summer classes go well. Keep that in mind. Um, the other thing I want to uh, remind you guys of is, you know, Jake's mom recently passed away and and uh, a lot of you served this weekend at the funeral, and I want to thank you for that. But, uh, you know, uh, that's tough stuff right there. You know, that's one of the toughest things that you can ever go through is, is watching your parents uh, pass away. And so make sure that you're praying for Jake and you're showing him love and that you're there for him. Uh, the hardest time is, is in, you know, like the three to, to four week mark. Uh, and, and you look around and, you, and it begins to set in, uh, you know, that things are just different. Like, things are just different now. And so make sure that we're there for him. We love him uh, deeply, and, and uh, we're so thankful for him, and I'm, I'm grateful that he's our family. But uh, we need to make sure that, that we treat him right and that we're there for him in uh, the coming months. So <clears throat> with that... We are in Acts today, Acts chapter 19. We're going to close out this chapter today. We are, I promise. We have to. Because uh, Dan is hot on my heels, and we've got to keep moving if we're going to stay ahead of him, right? Um, so just, just by way of recap, Acts chapter 30, we know what the book, I'm not going to recap the entire book of Acts every time we get together, all right? You guys just get that, right? I'm not going to do that. But in Acts chapter 13 and onward, uh, what we do recognize is that, that um, the, the, the early church is focused heavily on sending people out into the, to the world to share the gospel, right? There's kind of that scattering that happens before that, where the church is kind of scattered due to oppression and persecution. And then from Acts chapter 13 onward to the end of the book, what we're seeing is that the believers are being proactive about taking their faith to other places. And that's kind of spearheaded by the work of the Apostle Paul and uh, the missionaries and the disciples that he gathers around him. And they start doing these missionary journeys. And that's what we've been, we've been looking at is these missionary journeys. And now in Acts chapter 19, we find ourselves concluding really Acts, uh, uh, Paul's last missionary journey uh, before oppression begins to set in a new way for him. Uh, so we see that Paul is a pioneer of the work, right? He's a pioneer of the missions work, and he's been planting churches, and he's been very busy. But then as we enter in the, the chapters moving ahead of us from this point on, we're going to see a completely different version of Paul, okay? We're going to see a Paul that is in incarceration. And so while it's been really cool to watch him in action, and we've been able to see his character on display, we've been able to see his focus We've been able to see uh, how he conducts himself and all the strategies that he used uh, to, to reach the lost. Now we're going to get some different kind of insight, an insight into to Paul and his suffering. And we're going to be able to see his heart and his mind in a new way moving forward. Uh, but before we get there, you know, and last time that we were together, we saw that, that the gospel was really beginning to take root in Ephesus, right? You guys remember this? that the church in Ephesus was beginning to grow and that they had a lot of free course and that people were beginning to receive the gospel and it was beginning to change this city pretty, pretty drastically. And uh, so much so that there were a group of Jewish men who uh, fancied themselves as miracle workers. Is this beginning to ring a bell? And uh, they were going around and professing this idea that they could perform these miracles and, and they came across this, this demon-possessed man and, uh, and they, didn't, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. And so what they did is they invoked the Jesus of Paul, right? They called upon the, the Jesus of Paul, to the, the, the Christ figure, uh, to, to do this miraculous work of delivering this person of these demons, right? And we remember what happens, right? 
the, the demon uh, mocks them and uh, ends up, you know, the, the man that was possessed ends up fighting them, tearing their clothes off of them, and they go running out into the street naked, right? So it's a pretty embarrassing moment for these guys. And, and, uh, but what we see here is that the fame of the gospel was beginning to be spread. And as we start our lesson today, we're going to see you know, that continue. Uh, but we're going to need to ask ourselves a very serious question. Are we or are we not a threat to the enemy? Like, are we, are we actually a danger to, to Satan and his agenda? That's the question that we're going to ask ourselves today. Does the way that we live our Christian life demand a response from the bad guys? Okay, because what we're going to see is that the persecution begins to, to increase. And, and we're, going to see, we're going to see Satan responding here to the gospel spreading in Ephesus in a new and, and unique way that's eventually going to end up in, in, in Paul getting, you know, arrested. But we're beginning to see Satan responding in a new and in a unique way. But the question is, are we the type of people that Satan actually needs to respond to? Or, are, or is our faith personally and collective as Kaya, MBT, or are, are we weak? I think we like to think of ourselves as being serious about our faith, but like Sam said today, like who are we comparing ourselves against, right? Like, like if we're comparing ourselves against, you know, you know, the weak flavors of Christianity that surrounds us, well, that's not really worth patting ourselves on the back over, the fact that we seem more radical compared to the nominal believers that surround us everywhere we go, right? The question is, are we actually a threat to the enemy the way that Paul and these early believers were? Are we, are we the type of poli- uh, people that, that Satan needs to respond to? And that's the question on the floor. So let's, let's pray one more time, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, I, I just want to come before you and confess that, that I am a jumbled mess and that uh, I've been so busy that uh, I can't seem to get my mind focused and uh, all the different teaching that, that I've, I've done recently and all these different things, it's like, a, um, it's, like I can't, it's like I can't stay my mind on one thing. And uh, I have this task before me, and that's to deliver your word to these people. And um, Lord, you know that I love them and I care for them and, and uh, I desire your very best for them. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would lay me aside for the next 45 minutes and you just allow me to deliver your word in a way that that honors you and that it it provokes these people to faith. Um, There is a great work to be done in this world and you've you've chosen us to do it. And uh, I I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why you would want us uh, to be on your team. But nonetheless, you chose us. And, and, and so, Lord, we want to apply ourselves to that work. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to ask ourselves hard questions, that we would be um, self-critiquing, and that we would see the areas of our life that, that, that don't match up, that don't align themselves with who you are, your personage and your character, and that, Lord, we would be willing to lay ourselves down a sacrifice, uh, Lord, that we would lay ourselves down ready to be pressed into the ensample of Jesus Christ, that we'd allow our lives to be changed and altered because of our adoration for you. So help us to get there and, and help, help me, Lord, use me this morning. I pray this in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Okay, so we have this crazy story, right? And, um, and so, you know, the story of this demon-possessed man begins to spread. The story begins to spread around Ephesus. And people begin taking note of it. And it begins to, to cause the people in Ephesus to be more curious about the gospel. And so they hear this story about, you know, because the demon said, he said, look, we know Paul, we, we know Jesus, but you guys, who are you guys? We don't know you guys. That's, that's what this familiar spirit says in this story. And, and so 
you know, people are rehearsing this story and in the street and in the marketplace, in the community. They're saying, did you hear about this crazy story about these Jewish men who tried to cast out this devil and blah, blah, blah. And the story starts spreading around and the fame of Jesus Christ begins to take root. And people are starting to get curious about who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And so people start paying attention. Well, what is the gospel? What is it that Paul's actually preaching? And lives are beginning to be changed. Let's look at verse 17 by way of review. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. So people were beginning to get saved. Lives were beginning to be changed. People were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. Now that sounds crazy for us in, a, in our Western culture that is fairly monotheistic and um, not that we don't have our fair share of black arts. We've talked about this in chapters past, but even here in Kansas City, even here in, in our peer groups, there are people that are practicing black arts. Okay, so it's not that crazy. There's, there's an, plenty of tarot card reading going around. There's, a lot, there's, there's plenty of Ouija boards being exercised, but that's, you know, that's child's play. You know, there's plenty of people that are asking familiar spirits for insight, hidden truths, right here in our own community, right here in our own families, even in our friend groups. This is becoming more and more popular, so we need to not be too shocked by this. But we also have to recognize that culturally and throughout history and throughout time, and, and even now in other cultures and other places, that there are a pantheon of demonic beings being worshipped as commonplace they're referred to as gods, but we know better, don't we? Right? These are demonic beings. And people are praying to them, and they're turning to them, and they're hoping in them. And that's not any different than the culture here in our story. So these people had these books, you know, scriptures, if you will, devoted to the black arts, devoted to their pantheon of gods. And when they encountered Jesus Christ, and they came to profess him, they gathered together their books and they went out into the street and they burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So these people's eyes are being opened to the truth of Jesus and they start burning these books that they keep in their houses, these pagan scriptures. And they go out to the bonfires and they torch it. Now I want you to take note here that the people here are so serious about following Christ that not only are people turning away from idolatry, not only are they turning away from the gods of their past, but the passage points out, it's very explicit here, that they're also turning away from materialism and a concern for money and material possessions. There were so many people doing this that the Bible records that the value of all these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, if you remember, it only took 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. So 50,000 pieces of silver, there's not an, an immediate equivalency in our own exchange system, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, some people estimate, upward of maybe close to a million dollars. People just throwing away good money, if you will. See, do you, are you hearing what I'm saying? That people aren't just deciding, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm turning away from the idolatry of, of my past. But not only that, but my affections are beginning to change. There's something that's happening in my heart to the point where I don't even care about my own self-interest. Like these people aren't willing to go and barter or sell these books away in the market, market that other people might have them. They take them to the street and they burn them. They're burning money. I mean, that's basically what the Bible is telling us here. The point is, is that they didn't care. Here's our first key point. When Christians are unaffected by the world, they are primed to impact the world. When Christians decide that it's not fame that they're interested in, 
They're not interested in wealth or, or getting the best job or, or having you know, a, a good reputation. When people begin to let go of the things that tether them to this world, then they're setting themselves up to really begin to impact the world. Christians become a potential danger to the enemy when they no longer care as much about possessions as wealth as they care about Christ. Now, why is that so significant? Because materialism is the prison of the enemy. And, and, and we ought to understand that more than anybody here in America. If we are really self-assessing and we, and we look at our lives and we, co- we compare ourselves to what other Christians in this world, you know, you go to other places where people have a lot less and they see, seem to have a lot more joy. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But man, Satan, Satan binds us with these material ideas of what happiness really is. And he imprisons us and he traps us And even Christians who profess Christ and know that they have a mission in life will will fall into the bondage of material things. You know, being, being so focused on getting that job that pays so well. Focused so heavily on on well, we've got to, we've got to, you know, we've got to save to buy our first house. You know, we gotta have this or that to have true happiness. And we get all these things in our mind, and all they seek to do is to tether us to this world, and they hold us back. And that's exactly the enemy's plan for you, believer, is to keep you tied up, to keep you entangled in this world. When God has so much more for you, and his mission extends so much further than that, the issue is affection. But the Christian who recognizes that they need nothing. They have, as Paul would say, want of nothing. That Christian is a very dangerous kind of Christian. Undistracted by the worldly affections. Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ. Believers, that's you, right? If you've been set free by the resurrected Jesus Christ so that you are bound to be resurrected yourself to new life. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Keep your eyes above the waves. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. When your affections are right, then you're in danger. Or you're, 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 you're putting the enemy in danger of losing ground. Noah hears the voice of God. You guys remember this story? We talked about it not too long ago. Noah hears the voice of God, and he adores God so greatly that he spends the next 100 years building an ark. Regardless of how he's perceived by his community and regardless of what it costs him financially. Right? He's given up on everything. I mean, I don't know what the man's full-time job was, but he quit. Let's put it that way. He spends the next 100 years building an ark Listen, that's a dangerous man. Someone that thinks that way, that's, that's a dangerous person. 1 Samuel 14.1, I'm sorry, uh, 14.6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bear his armor, come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, listen, do all that is in thine heart. Where are the affections? Where are the affections? Where are they housed? In your heart. Do all that is in thine affections. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And so Jonathan crawled on his hands and feet to meet an unknown number of enemies. 
That's a dangerous freaking man, isn't it? That dude is dangerous. He's not playing. All David needed to know is that Goliath had defied the armies of the living God. That's all he needed to know. That's all he needed. Enough said. The boy picks up five rocks and goes out to meet him in battle. He's not concerned with how tall he is. He's not not concerned with how well-trained he is, how strong he is, how many he's killed. He's unconcerned. That's a dangerous man. That's a dangerous individual. Daniel didn't care about laws that would keep him from prayer. He didn't care about that. Daniel prayed with the windows open that all might see. That's a, that's a dangerous man right there. We're not, not even the government can cause him to fear. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He had nothing but his faith and his boldness. That's a dangerous, dangerous man. When Saul gives up the power and the authority of the Sanhedrin to live a life on the run for Jesus' sake, that's a dangerous man. So when the disciples in Ephesus start burning books of great financial and cultural value in the streets, these are dangerous people. People who are dead to their own material self-interest and alive in their faith are the most dangerous type of people on the face of the earth. But look, that's not enough. That's not enough. The affections of, of these young Ephesian believers, that wasn't the only thing. They also brought their enthusiasm. Look at verse 20. They had a dangerous enthusiasm. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. So when the word of God was prevailing, then the hearts of the people were stirred. Okay, now let's talk about this stirring. Let's talk about this stirring. When the word of God went forth and began to prevail in the city, there was a stirring that that took place. And that stirring first started in the hearts of every single one of those young converts in Jesus Christ. And it makes me think a lot about the young believers that we have here in this ministry. There's a lot of people who've only just recently come to Christ or or just recently come back to Christ in this ministry. And it's amazing to watch how young believers' hearts are so easily stirred up by Jesus Christ. It's It's so encouraging when you see young believers getting that sincere milk of the word and their eyes become open and they become excited for the very first time about who Jesus Christ is, and they want to share the gospel, and there's an enthusiasm, there's a stirring in their hearts. That leads us to the next key point, is that when the gospel is lived out, there will always be a stir. And that begins first with you, believer. There will always be a stir. But then there should also be no surprise here that when when the word of God prevails and people's lives are changed, that the effects of that change become controversial in the lives of people around them. And this has always been true throughout all of Christian history. The gospel is like a ripple. It's like a ripple. And it starts first, kaplunk, right? That's the stirring in your heart. But the effects of that stirring, they emanate, don't they? They emanate out. And they begin to impact and move the water and begin to change the things around it. And people don't always like that. And I want to say this to the young believers in particular. You need to recognize that people aren't going to be around you, aren't going to be as excited about your newfound faith as you are. And you're going to have friends and you're going to have family who resist your change. Resist your newfound faith. And it might be controversial with them. But don't lose hope. Have you ever noticed that you can't really stop a ripple? 
Like, tell, tell me, how do you stop a ripple? Like, once it's going, there's no, there's really, there's no stopping it. It just, the only thing it can do is fade out, right? You can't stop a ripple. You can't jump into the water and, like, try to contain it. There's no doing that. But listen to me. People are going to try to stop your ripple. And you ought not be discouraged. You ought to trust the Lord for another stone and another stone and another stone. See, once God has stirred the water, then it, very, it becomes very difficult to contain or minimize. And you need to, you need to embrace that. But then you also need to recognize that the enemy is going to do what he can to stop the ripple. He's not stupid. Satan's not stupid. He knows that the only way for him to stop the ripple of God's word is to cause his own ripple. Is to cause his own ripple. When the the ripple of new affections in the lives of believers begin to take place, when the ripple of enthusiasm begins to increase, The only thing he can do is create his own counter ripple, right? Maybe this is a stupid illustration. It's the only one I came up with, okay? That's all I had, right? But the only thing that you can think of is that that when God starts a work and it begins to ripple out, the only thing that can impact that is another ripple right here next to it, right? Pressing against it. He creates his own stir intended to silence the voice of the gospel. Key point. When the gospel stirs the heart of people, it also stirs the sleeping lion. You guys know that the, the scriptures talk about Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now the thing about a lion is that they're, they're pretty docile when they're asleep. Daniel experienced that. But here's the deal. When the ripple starts and it begins to stir and God begins to do a work and a movement takes place, And Ephesus is affected by the gospel. And your campus is affected by the gospel. And our city is affected by the gospel. Then it stirs that lion up. It'll awaken him. And we need not be afraid of that. It's it's just a fact. It's just the truth. But but here's the deal. For some of you, some of you, you allow these counter ripples. You, you allow this counterattack. You, you, you allow the inciting of these family members and friends and people that you encounter or old friends that come back into your life to impede the work of God. You get discouraged. You get frustrated. We can't let that happen. We have to remember our affection and our enthusiasm. We've got to protect the work that God's doing in our heart because we've got, we've got to know that Satan is going to do something about it. He's not going to lay down. He's not going to let us win this city. He's not going to let us go plant churches. He's not going to let us do that unaffected. So Satan incites the heart of one man in our story. And this man is concerned about his finances, the exact opposite of the Ephesians who came to Christ. He was concerned about his well-being, concerned that his personal liberties were being infringed upon. So we're introduced to to Demetrius in in verse 24. For a man, a certain man, named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. So here we have this guy named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, who's made his wealth in building shrines, you know, small temples, for people to worship Diana, trinkets, if you will, small altars and figurines dedicated to this goddess Diana. Now, Diana is, uh, is this uh, Roman goddess who's a, basically like an amalgamation of several other gods, right, uh, from, from Greek mythology. And they kind of bring them together and, you know, that's the thing about gods. They're real flexible, you know, because they're not real and stuff, Right. So you can kind of like mix them up and match them um, like Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and so Diana is kind of like these ancient, other ancient gods and goddesses. They kind of bring them together. And so she's, 
She's several different gods combined. She's a goddess of the moon. She's a goddess of the countryside and, and hunting and agriculture and uh, rural activities of, of the such. You know, I didn't grow up in the country, so like stuff that country people do. You know? And oh yeah, she's the goddess of the underworld. You know, no biggie. Like the goddess of hell and stuff. So, um, now, so this is the god that they're worshiping. And uh, in, here in Ephesus, she's like the primary god. And these, these men, these craftsmen, have made their wealth in creating these knickknacks and these trinkets devoted to her. And they're concerned that the, the, the novelty of their profession is going to wear off and the economy is going to drop out on their endeavor. And that their well-being and their happiness is going to be threatened. People don't like when they think that their well-being and their happiness is going to be affected. They don't like it. They don't like it. Look at verse 26. Moreover, ye see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but also, also throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So, uh oh, Paul and this team, you know, they're telling people that, they're, that these gods that they're worshiping aren't worth worshiping. And so it's causing a problem. Isaiah 44 9 says this. I, I really like this verse, so I want to include it. They that make a graven in, image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witness. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath, formed, who, who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be, uh, be ashamed together. And so these are men like described here in Isaiah 44, 9, right? So Demetrius, he is afraid. He's afraid that people are losing interest in his spiritual trinkets. You know, I, one of the things I love about this too is that they also acknowledge the fact that Paul's message is, is not just having impact there, but it's, just, it's changing the entire region, right? All of Asia Minor, they recognize it, that there's a, there's a shift in the tide, that things are changing, can't help but acknowledge it. Even the, even the enemy has to acknowledge the seriousness of what's happening. Verse 27. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Oh, oh yeah, boohoo for Diana too, I guess. You know. Like, let's throw, we got to throw that in there because we got to be spiritual, right? Oh, yeah, and we're kind of concerned about Diana, too. I mean, we know that their affection is really set on their wallets, right? They're not actually concerned about Diana. They're not concerned about that. But, you know, they got to say it. So what do these guys do? What is the outcome from their labor union meeting that they have here? Verse 28, and when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So they start yelling and chanting. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having got, uh, caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And so what they did is that they grabbed the, the first two disciples that they could recognize. They grabbed them. And they drag them into the amphitheater. Thousands of people rushing to the outdoor theater, chanting, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they're shouting, and they're angry, and the riot escalates quickly. They're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, a, a very, you know, a very nationalistic, a very populist sentiment. You know, we're not, we're not going to let these men take away our traditions. You know, you can, you can hear it. But the thing about it is, it says that it's filled with confusion. And they start this, this protest in the street. And, 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 and it, what starts is just like this, this frustration with, 
with this uh, attack against Diana and, and these men's wallets, it becomes all these other things. It becomes riotous and riotous in the behavior, and, and people start shouting all different things, and it becomes confusing. And and everyone, everyone has their own agenda. Verse thirty, and when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. So Paul's like, well, let me just go out there and talk to him, right? Which is just like Paul, right? Dude just doesn't, he just doesn't care. He's not worried about it. He's like, well, maybe it's an opportunity. Let's go. Let's go find him. <laughs> you know, maybe some people will get saved. I don't know. Maybe I'll die. I don't, you know, whatever. And, but they, they you know, the disciples are like, no, nah, not this time, bro. <laughs> you know, let's sit this one out. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his, uh, were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him, that he would not adventure himself into the theater. I like that word. He would not adventure himself into the theater. I'm sure that would have been an adventure. <laughs> Verse 32. Some, therefore, cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. So, so one person is yelling one thing, another person is yelling another thing, and their vo- voices lacked any sort of unity. See, they're coming together, and they're like asking, what are we here for? And all they knew is that whatever was going on, they were upset about it. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm really pissed. And this is how riots behave, isn't it? Uh, I, when I was, I, I was young, I read this book called The Oxbow Incident. Anybody ever read this book? Any other people enjoy, you know, m- mid-century uh, Western novels? No? Okay, all right. The, so the, well, there's a movie, too. You know, if there's a movie sometimes, no? Okay. Uh, no, The Oxbow Incident, it's this story about how, uh, you know, these... these uh, Cowboys came across this ranch and discovered that the cattle at this ranch had been stolen, and uh, the guy that lived there was nowhere to be found. They presumed dead, so they believed that some cattle rustlers had come through town and and taken the taken all the cattle. You guys are so disinterested in this story. I can feel it. I can sense it. It's a good, it's a really good book, by the way. Uh, so so what happens is that they they gather a bunch of people. Together, like they, uh, a group to go after who you know whoever it was that that rustled this cattle. That's the that's how they talk about it, rustled. That's how, when you're a cowboy. That's how you talk. Okay. So whoever took the cattle, they're going to go hunt them down and catch them. And so this this group of men, they get all riled up and they go after and they they, they chase these guys down. And when they get there, the men claim that they purchased the cattle outright. That like. You know, do you have a receipt of purchase? Well, no, but you can go talk to so-and-so. Well, we were there, and he's not there. And so what they do is they string these guys up, and they kill them right there. Okay, they're, they've got the cattle, you know. They look guilty, okay. But just then, about then, um, this, the marshal comes up and, and finds them just after they've killed these men. And it's like, no, what, what's his name? Old Joe, whatever his name was, I can't remember now. No, he's back at his ranch. He sold that, he sold that cattle. I'm like totally giving away the story, but it's a good story. You can, you can read it if you want. But anyway, Jessica, you're not going to rush out to get it? No? Okay. So, so these men killed the innocent. But this is the, this is the way mobs work. This is the way riots work. Look, this is even the way protests work. I, I don't think it's, you know, this is pretty fresh in our minds, right? Protests and whatnot. And when people are protesting together in the streets that really everybody's kind of got their own agenda. They've got their own purpose, the, the thing that they want to, that they're trying to trumpet, they're trying to fight for. See, here we have a mob who's convinced that Jesus is their enemy, convinced that the gospel is, is, is only going to infringe on their personal rights, so they begin to protest. But it's just like selfish people to pro- protest not even knowing what they're protesting. And it's just like the enemy to incite people and convince them that they are the victims. Right? That's what feeling like a victim causes you to fight for your rights. And then it, it does this thing where it's like, well, the, 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 the uh, what is it? The old saying is the, the, 
enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? You know that old saying, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's what happens is all these people come together. But see, here's the deal. See, the plurality of human protests will always lack harmony. It'll, all be, it'll always just be confusion. The lost world will never find unity. Even in, in their, if their causes overlap one another, they will never find unity. At the end of the day, they're too selfish to ever have a cohesive message. It'll always be contradictory. It'll always be illogical. And it'll always be that way because the only unity, the next key point, is the only unity the enemy knows is disunity. It's the only kind of unity that the enemy knows is disunity. Isaiah 56.11 says, Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. That's the way lost people think. You know, the message of tolerance is so popular in our world right now, but people don't really care about tolerance. What they want is they want someone to leave them alone so that they can be left to their own sin uninhibited. Like, I just, look, I just want to do what I want to do, and you do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and we'll just hate all the people who don't like what we do. That's the world that we live in. That's the postmodern world that we live in. It's a world where no one really has a unified voice. The only unified voice that exists is a hatred for Jesus Christ. It's a hatred for the gospel. Everybody's got their own initiative and own agenda. There's infighting all around them. There's confusion everywhere. That's, tr- that's just true. But the one voice of unity, the one thing that we can hear coming out of that crowd is that they hate Jesus. They hate, they hate what we believe. And we're going to only see this more and more. You understand? That's not, that's not going away. That was true in the first century, and it's true today. And we better face it. We, we better understand that it's just a fact of our faith. So let's continue on in our story and find out what happens. And they drew Alexander, Alexander out of the multitude of the Jews, put, putting him forth. And Alexander, so Alexander is just is this, this guy who is kind of a, like a politician, right? And he gets out in front of the people, and Alexander beckoned them with his hand and would have made his defense unto the people. So he tries to, to silence the people down, and then he makes a defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one, uh, one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay, so he gets shut down. Okay, so they find out that this guy's a Jew, right? They're not interested in him. They, they're associating him with Paul. They're associating him with Christianity. So they shout that guy down for two hours. Two hours. That's a long, that's a long time to be yelling. I mean, my voice is going to be for real tired in like 15 minutes. So they're yelling for two hours. And when the town clerk, okay, here's another, another political figure of more prominence. When the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? So he's like, look, chill, y'all. Calm down. Look, who doesn't know that in Ephesus that we worship Diana? Everybody knows that. Everybody's familiar with that. Everybody knows that's who we are and that's who we'll always be. Don't worry about that. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet, and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Okay, so when they say churches, what they mean is these temples devoted to goddess, goddesses, right, or gods. And all right, they're not going in and stealing things from out of, the, out of your churches, out of your temples. right? They're not robbing you. They haven't done anything against you specifically. You've brought these men uh, hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. And if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. 
For we are in danger to be called into que- in, in question for this day, uh, day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this, co- of this concourse. And we, when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so what's happening here? He gives his political spiel, right? He gets up there. He appeases the people. He says, calm down, y'all. It's not a big deal. Everybody knows we worship uh, the goddess Diana. And oh, yeah, by the way, if the uproar gets too big, you're going to get all those Roman centurions in here, and we're going to all start getting arrested, and things are going to be a problem for us. If you've got a real problem, okay, with Paul and these guys, take it to the law and let them be, be prosecuted through the law, through the, through the proper systems, Okay? Now listen to me. I want want to point out real quick that this town clerk, this guy, even though he causes the riots to subside, he's no friend of Christianity. Okay? Now, I I want to say this because I just want us to be really self-aware. That even if politicians appease us, that doesn't mean they're of us. You understand? Even if they seek to appease us, and even if they say that they, they agree, you know, ideologically with things that we agree with, even if it seems that they're in our court, that doesn't necessarily mean they're of us. And what I mean by that is not to make you exceptionally cynical, okay? What I mean by that is we know one thing. We sang that today. We know one thing. And that's Christ and him crucified. That's the one thing we know. And we as Christians don't get hung up in politics. We don't get hung up in all of that chatter. Right? We don't get hung up on that. We, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we preach that. And that's the, that's the, that's the only, you know, ideology that I have. And so even if people seem to be saying the right things... Okay? That doesn't, that doesn't mean we should align ourselves in return. But see, because what's happened throughout history, throughout Christian history, is that the moment that someone begins to appease the Christian voice in order to g- gain their populace, and in order to gain that, that population of people to vote for them, or whatever it might be, is the moment when Christianity loses its ripple. It begins to lose its impact. When we, when we find ourselves cuddling up cozy with political leaders or people with, you know, influence, like, that's not what we're about. Like, I'm, like, I'm thankful for all of the politicians who want to, you know, fight against evil things that I consider evil. And when, when, I, when I see politicians who are morally similar to me, that's, like, that's cool. But I'm not putting my stake in them. I'm not aligning myself with them. Because I don't believe that my kingdom is on this earth. I have a kingdom that's waiting for me. And that's why I'm a citizen. And so I don't get hung up. Now I want to look real quick uh, here at Paul for a second. First of all, I I want to note again the threat of Paul. The threat of Paul. I want to point out to you, first of all, that Paul was an incredibly dangerous person. He was a threat to their wealth, he was a threat to their worship, and he was a threat to their world, all of Asia Minor, the entire culture. He was a threat to them because of what he preached. And you know what? The lost world should be angry when we're a threat that way. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, they think that the world thinks that Christians are keeping them from their pleasures. That's the way the world thinks. And they're mad about it. And the enemy is on the prowl, even in our world, trying to silence churches, take away our rights, take away freedoms that we've been privileged to have, thank God. But they're working deliberately. There are people working deliberately against us. And they call, they call us bigoted. They call us, they call, they, they call well, good evil. And they're, they're, they're proactive in their hatred. And they feel threatened by us. And they should. I mean, if we're really doing what we should do. I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that 
is that people in our world today are, are actually be succumbing, succumbing to the counter ripple. And Christians are losing their voice and they're being, they're being you know, stifled and tamped down. And Christians, Christian voices, the gospel's not getting louder. It's being effectively silenced because, because we're afraid to be called, you know, bigots and, you know, people hate us and treat us. You know, we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel bad about what we believe. And, and so what we do is we appease in return. And so we begin to look like the world. Like, look, guys, look, I, I look like you guys. Look at me. Right? I'm just like you. It's, it's okay. I, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, but... No, I don't, you know, I don't associate with those Christians, no. And so Christianity becomes tamped back. It becomes silenced. It becomes weak. It becomes diluted. That's what's happening to Christianity in our world. Because Christians are afraid. They're supposed to be the threat. And they feel threatened. And so their voice is silenced. Listen to me. We have the key to unlock everything. We have the key to set souls free. We know how to deliver from God's word. We know how to deliver people from, from the punishment of hell. But we're comfortable going to church every Sunday and playing church, playing Christianity. That's exactly what the enemy wants. That's what his response, him inciting the, the riotous mobs, inciting the protester, inciting the politicians, inciting the culture to riot and to protest, his hope is that we would be silent. And you know what? Right now in America, in 2021, it's working. Now we're on the defense. Because too many of us are entangled in the world system to actually be a threat. And we look just like the people that we're supposed to be a threat to. We're just as idolatrous and we're just as obsessed with riches and we're just as influenced by the worldly culture as they are. And it makes us of no effect. And we lose our affection. We lose our affections, and we lose our enthusiasm, and we lose who we are in Jesus Christ, and the mission gets silence, and we get quiet, and we just get in line. And we play at our faith when we're supposed to be the ones that are a threat to the enemy. We're, you know, we're, we're supposed to be out in the street sharing the gospel. And so many people are, are cowering. It's a shame. I also want to point out something to you really interesting because as much as Paul wanted to go out and go out there and go toe-to-toe with that mob, as much as he wanted to do that, he took the advice of the disciples and decided to stay back. And he decided to withdraw himself. And I want to talk about why. Why, when, when stuff hits the fan, Paul's nowhere to be seen. See, Paul didn't come out to dispute with them or defend himself. He stayed back. We have to remember that it's in our best interest to live peaceably. Romans 12, 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. See, here's the deal. This is, this is the point I kind of want to make, Okay? is that so many people that call themselves Christians just want to go toe-to-toe. Go toe-to-toe go with the culture. Go toe-to-toe politically. And they want to fight the battle in the amphitheater. They want to get out into the amphitheater and they, and they want to, you know, show them a thing or four, right? And what they do is that they... They take the real danger out of their voice because they've lost faith. They put their faith in the system. 
they, they put their faith in their flesh and, and they lose their potency. See, we need to let the gospel be what, what makes us dangerous, not our opinions or not who can be the loudest or most effective at debating or whatever that might be. We need to let the gospel itself be dangerous and we need to leave the anger and contention to the enemy and just let God handle that stuff. We need to learn to let God handle that stuff. So key point, we don't seek danger. The gospel is dangerous enough. We don't seek danger. We're not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight. I left all that behind me. That's, that's me at 18. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm, you know, I'm docile. You know, I'm, I'm not actually even looking to get my opinions across. You know? What am I, I don't have any, uh, the, the only thing I have to fight for is the gospel itself. And so the only thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to put the gospel out there. The danger is going to come, right? The lion's going to show up on my doorstep. I don't need to go poke him and prod him, right? He's, he's coming. He's going to show up. And so we've got to remember that it's our responsibility to live peaceably in our world so that we can very silently infiltrate and be a danger underground, if you will. And so on our campuses, we've got to be really careful. In our neighborhoods, we've got to be careful. You know, even if we're this place now where we've got to be careful about what we post on Facebook because we don't need the retribution of grandma and your aunts and, like, all the people you knew in high school that, like, that hate you for what you believe. Like, none of that's worth it. Like, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in the culture war is, is my whole point I'm making to you. Don't get caught up in that mess. That's, leave that to the Christians who've traded faith for flesh. We put our faith in God. Let him handle that nonsense. Our responsibility is to take the gospel. That's going to bring enough danger into our lives. So in this moment in Ephesus, Paul had nothing to prove. He had nothing to prove. So he takes a step back, and he gets out of the public's eye, and he lets the situation unfold, and guess what? God took care of it. Because listen, here's the deal. We're not looking to protect our reputation. We're looking for another opportunity to preach. We're looking to start another ripple. That's what we're looking to do. We're not looking to defend ourselves or make sure that people love us a whole lot, right? Or that everybody feels like we're just, you know, he's the bestest Christian I know, that Brandon. You know, he's such a good guy. Man, it makes me really think Christians are actually good people. Look, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking to obey the Father. Okay? I'm looking to obey the Father. I'm looking to do what He wants me to do. I want to live peaceably. I want to get along with people. I don't, I don't need to engage in all that. But listen, I know when to keep my mouth shut. Because I'm waiting for the, for the mob to die down. So that I can throw another rock in the pond. So I can create another stir. Because my primary objective in this life, between now and the day that I die, is to impact as many people with the gospel that I possibly can. And I want to be a dangerous man. I want to be on the enemy's most wanted list. I want that. I want that. I'm telling you that right now, out loud. He can hear me right now. (laughs) I want to be on the enemy's most wanted list. But not because of my opinions and not because I'm trying to defend myself, because I just preached the gospel. That's it. The word of God is divisive. It's divisive. It divides families, it divides homes, it divides perspectives, it divides people. It just separates things. So it needs to have its perfect work without me getting in the way. So I've got a couple questions for you today as we close. First of all, where are your affections? Where are your affections? I mean, are you just as idolatrous as the Ephesians? Some of us are. Some of us are so caught up in our money, in our job, in what we have. We're so caught up in that stuff. 
that no one can distinguish you from among the Christians anyway. Like, you look just like the world. They can't distinguish between you and the world. You look just like them. People in your work, they don't know that you're a believer. People in your family, oh, yeah, so-and-so goes to church. I don't want anybody to say that I go to church. I don't want anyone to say that I go to church. You know what I want people to say? You know that Brandon? He's a Christian, and he's kind of radical. He's kind of weird. And if you get a, yeah, and if you get around him, if you get around him, you better be ready. You're going to hear about this Jesus guy. That's what I want people saying. I can't be so concerned. <laughs> Listen, y'all. Look, as a parent, let me just tell you, I want my kids to kind of have stuff. Like, I kind of want them to have nice shoes because when I was a kid, I didn't have nice shoes. I, I, I kind of want them to. I kind of want them to have stuff and, and be well fed and not have to eat government cheese the way I did. You know, Kool-Aid and hot dogs and spaghetti. You know, SpaghettiOs. You know, that's like how I ate. And I, I kind of want them to have stuff. And I, I kind of want them to have a nice house with a nice, like with a cool bedroom and st- stuff to be proud of. And, and I want to confess to you right now that some of those thoughts, some of those ideas need to be purged from my mind. That my kid doesn't need to be the best, you know, best soccer player on his team and, and that he needs to, you know, be on a competitive, like, listen, this is, these are the tra- trappings of being a parent. But listen, y'all got your own trappings. And we've got to untether ourselves from the world. We have to set our affections on the Lord and not on worldly things because it's the only way that we could be a threat. The other question is, is your faith naturally causing a stir everywhere you go? Not because you're inciting agitation, but because you're simply preaching the gospel. Because you're just preaching the gospel. You know, like I said, I feel a little tongue-tied today, and I don't know if I communicated really well. But what I want to say to you today, and what I, I need you to understand, is that your affections and your enthusiasm, enthusiasm, see what I mean? Enthusiasm have to be right. They have to be right. And then from there, you've just got to open your mouth. And you're going to create all the problems that you can handle. You understand? That'll be enough. And we've got to trust the Lord for that. And so if our affections are off at all, and if we refuse to preach the gospel, then we need to repent of that right now, Christian. We need to repent of that. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm sweating. It's like 1,000 degrees in here. Why did I layer up? It's like springtime. I'm like layered over here. Like it's January. But, but hey, y'all, let's enter into worship. And let's practice setting our affection. Can we do that? Setting our affection on Jesus Christ. And if there's something that's off, if there's something that's off, it's time to deal with it right now. Right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We need you. We desire you. We need you. You are our God. You're the one true God. You separate yourself from all the other gods. Lord, you died on my behalf. You gave your life for me. And when I sit and I think about the blood you shed and the the love that was required of you, to give up your life. There's no greater love. And your affection was on me. Your heart was for me. And you've adored me more than I've ever adored you. And you've loved me with a perfect love that far surpasses what I'm even able to muster. And and, and no no matter how great my imagination is, and no, no matter how clearly I can, I can picture Golgotha, and no matter how clearly I can, I can see your face and see the blood on your brow, I can't seem to muster the affection necessary to live for you in every moment. And so I simply ask for your help. 
because I want to be used by you. And I, I want my affections to be right. And so, so teach me how to look upon you with a loving gaze all the time. All the time in every moment. And Lord, please bolster in, in me a faith that is a threat to the enemy. The Lord, that my life would be a danger to all those who've been imprisoned by Satan. And that I might be able to set those captives free with my voice, with my faith, with my opportunity. Lord, use me. Provoke in me a, a very serious, a very serious desire to share the gospel everywhere I go. And to let it have its perfect work. And trust you to live peaceably all my days as an agent of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.com. 